So, there are several ways to destroy the church, if you are so inclined. One way is the direct way, and that is through persecution and oppression and killing Christians, and that is one way practiced in the world. Just go ahead and directly kill believers. And another way to destroy the church is to do it from the inside. And that is where people who are nice, who look like believers, teach things that are not biblical. Now that only works when people who believe in Jesus do not know their Bibles. Because then they say, well, sounds okay, and the guy seems like a nice guy, so I guess what he's saying is true. But it's interesting that guys who want to destroy the church from the inside can't even get started when people in the church know the truth and live the truth. And that's what Jude is writing about today. We're going to look at the whole book today and see if we can't do it and not kill anybody. My pledge to you. So let's read the first couple of verses here. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So, as you do a book study, you talk about who wrote it, to whom, the date of it, and we can see the author is Jude, and he's the brother of James. Now that, that tells you, first of all, how important James was in the church, that you can refer to him as James, and everybody knows who you're talking about. He ended up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem very early on. He is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, Jude is James's brother. That makes Jude the half-brother of Jesus. You notice he doesn't start off by saying Jude, the magnificent half-brother of Jesus, because there's a point that he wants to make in his epistle, and it's about how important the truth is, how important to have the truth in your life and live it out. He embodies this because it's not about who Jude is. It's who Jesus is. He doesn't make his appeal on the basis of his own personality and greatness. It's the truth. So that's who Jude is, a servant of Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who are called, 
Beloved of God the Father, in some of your margins, it says beloved, sanctified by God the Father, kept, preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, called of God. In Romans, in our study of Romans, Paul writes in Romans 8 that believers are foreknown by God, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. They are called, justified, and glorified. And that means that Jude is writing to those who are called by God, that he's already known, and he's predestined them. He wants to get them all the way to glory. And he says here, preserved in Jesus Christ. That's how believers make it all the way. Do you ever stop and think for a minute, how am I ever going to make it to heaven? And you think, I'll never do it. You can more easily see yourself failing and burning than actually making it triumphantly. Well, this is part of our salvation, is that God is the one who brings you to heaven. And take comfort, you are not the most difficult person that Jesus has ever saved. There are lots of more difficult people than you. So he's going to get you there without really working up a sweat because he's God. And the way that he preserves you is in Jesus. And it's kind of like taking a train trip. You know, when you get on the right train, you're going to get there. The destination has been set in advance, predestined. You might fall down on that train while it's headed to your destination. You might skin your knee. You might bleed. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get where that train is headed. The train is going to get you there. Here we are in Christ. And Jesus will preserve us and keep us and bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. He's going to finish the work that he starts. Does everybody get that? I get that. So, if you were called by God and you've received Jesus, Jude is writing to you. You can take this personally. The date that Jude was written is most likely after 2 Peter. Because if you read 2 Peter 2 and Jude, you think, my goodness, they're very similar. Because they're both warning about false teachers. And what kind of guys these false teachers are. And you think, well, some people have thought somebody copied somebody. And, you know, that doesn't feel very good to think somebody copied somebody in the Bible, but 
in practicality, you get that in the Bible. You get huge quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it's a way of emphasizing something. And repetition is one evidence of emphasizing. So you got to expect that, and especially when it's about something important. But you read the two, 2 Peter 2 and Jude, and you realize they are different. They emphasize different things. So it's not like, you know, straight plagiarizing. And there's a couple of reasons that it looks like Jude comes after 2 Peter, right? For example, in 2 Peter, Peter says, false teachers will come and secretly introduce heresies. Jude 4 says, this has happened. So Peter was writing at a time when he's warning you guys have to look out for this. Jude says, guys, it's already happened. So that is one circumstance to look at. The other is in verses 17 and 18, when Jude is reminding people what the apostles spoke, he quotes 2 Peter 3, verse 3, almost verbatim. So, those two bits of evidence seem to indicate that Jude wrote after 2 Peter. And maybe I can throw in this as well. I was at a, a Youth with a Mission Go Festival in Salem, Oregon. And one of the leaders in Youth with a Mission got up and started giving a message uh, because the other guy hadn't arrived yet. And when the other fella arrived, they said, oh, you, we'll finish the other message later. Get up there and do it. And the guy got up and he delivered the same message. And when he found out, this guy's face turned so red. And all that to say, I actually saw two different guys give the same message at the same time. There's nothing the matter with that, except if you're that guy that got caught out. Who knows about that stuff? But forget it. The date of Jude is somewhere between A.D. 66 and 80, somewhere around in there. It's still during the apostolic time. Now, look at this blessing here in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, I've noticed this before, and I've told you guys, that our salvation in the Lord is not static. It's dynamic. That is, when you think about heaven, and you think, I'm going to sit on a cloud with a halo and a harp going forever? That's salvation? The answer is no. That it's only going to get better. 
In the ages to come, the Lord is going to show us the riches of his mercy to us. It's going to continue to grow. That is the amazing thing about God. He is not static. And so our salvation is about multiplying mercy, peace, and love. Now, we want to keep growing or else we start dying. And it's possible to even receive the Lord and go backwards and forget and lose our understanding, our grasp of salvation. And this letter is part of what God does so that we don't go back, but we keep going forward. God wants us to grow. He wants you to grow. Isn't that great? All right. Now, let's read this for a while, because we do have to read a bit. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Jude tells us flat out why he wrote. To contend for the faith. Now, he planned to just sit down and explain our salvation. And that would have been good, huh? Because everything you get that expands and introduces us and teaches us more about our salvation, that's good. But he found that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. Isn't that funny? That he felt, okay, I'm going to write an exposition about all this. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to write a warning. This is a greater necessity. And he says, you guys need to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is more important right now. Now, by the faith, Jude means the facts concerning our salvation. They are facts. They happened historically. This is what we believe, what we hold to be true. Here's what Luke says in Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact 
truth about the things you've been taught. So this is what actually happened. You know that if the gospel isn't true, then it's not good news. It's a fairy tale. And you know, you'll, you read some time in commentaries about pious frauds. And they'll knock down a part of the Bible and say, well, it's a pious fraud. You know, written in order to help people out, but you know it's not real. Well, you know, just take pious out of there. Who wants a fraud? And frauds aren't pious. So either it's true or it's ridiculous. Get rid of it. See, we got to hold to the truth. But what Jude means by the faith is more than just the facts that we have to hold on to. The facts that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and raised three days later, according to the scriptures. There's another aspect to this. Can you mute my mic for a second? And on the live stream. There's another aspect to this. That we've got the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament that interpret those facts and also apply them to say, if you've received Jesus, this is what your life needs to look at like. And if your life doesn't look like this, then you have to question yourself, did you receive Jesus? See, because ultimately, the safeguard for the truth is a living person who has not only received the facts, but lives out the truth because Jesus Christ lives in them. And they themselves are the testimony to the truth. That's what Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The truth is embodied. It's not this abstract set of theorems and proofs that you just kind of manipulate like it was so many Legos and everything's fun and cool. No, the truth is meant to be lived and lived out. So, we're to contend earnestly for the facts and the interpretation of those facts as we read in the New Testament. Now, there are men in the church who are out to make the church its exact opposite. This is a weird phenomenon in the world. But it's true that any organization left to itself, given enough time, becomes its exact opposite. And you can see that happen in so many ways, but especially in the church. It's like there's a continual action of corruption acting upon the church 
in order to turn it into its exact opposite. Instead of people who embody the truth and live out the truth, it becomes an organization or a club or some kind of thing where you just do it. I don't know why. My mom did it, so I do it. It's what we do. We're all, we're all these kind of religious people, so that's what we do. And yesterday, I ran into a Greek fellow. He's orthodox. He says, yeah, you know, they came in, and they did all these things, and it's like they wept from my mother. All of a sudden, they're crying, and all of a sudden, they stop, and it's like they did it, the thing. And for him, it's just a bunch of motions that you go through, and there's people who know how to do it, and that was my mom, but today it's like, I don't know. It's not real. So here are these guys who are actually focused on making the church its exact opposite and thereby destroying it. And you notice here, they live ungodly lives. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Now, lewdness means preoccupation with sexual things. And if you're just thinking about sex and stuff all the time, that means you're lewd. It's just the right word that describes it. Not only do they live like this, but they teach other people in the church to live like this. And you notice, they crept in unnoticed. Nobody notices these guys. They don't walk in with a red cape and a pitchfork and really heavy Gothic stuff. And they say, I know, let's be ungodly. Would that be fun, everybody? Because everybody would say, mm, don't think so, there's the door. Don't do that here. But see, they stick around and they're nice people and they're just nice. If they weren't nice, nobody would listen to them. But Christianity is not about being nice. I hope you get that. It is about being transformed from death to life by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we need to recognize these men and women in the church and realize there are people in the church who want to destroy it. So look at what Jude does first. In verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. 
Now, what Jude wants to remind us is that God has judged sinners and that he will judge sinners. And it's pretty sobering, isn't it, to think that God could lead upwards of two million people out of slavery in Egypt in order to bring them into the land that he promised them, and yet of upwards of two million people, only two guys actually made it into the land. Freed from Egypt, but die in the wilderness because of unbelief. God says, okay, I'm done. You guys are going to wander in the wilderness till you're dead. I'll bring in your children. That's pretty sobering. And then he, Jude mentions these angels. That is, there was a time that angels abandoned their proper domain. This is alluding to Genesis chapter 6, where angels decide they're going to marry human women and have children with them. Now, these angels were created by God to exist in a higher realm than people. It's just true. As much as humans are above animals. So angels were created to be way above us. They get to see the face of God. They get to participate in his life on a level that we can only read about. And yet you have this tremendous corruption where they would turn away from the face of God and look at the planet Earth on a woman and say, wow, she is a knockout. I would love to sleep with her. On an angelic level, that is perversion, tremendous perversion. And they did that. Now, they valued living far below what God created them for. And therefore, he judged them by chaining them up in darkness. We can only imagine. Here, they were, they were created to exist in God's light and to know him and participate in his life. And now, they have lost freedom. They have really forfeited everything that God created them for and they're only waiting for judgment, even right now. They're going to come out of judgment, maybe see the face of God for the last time, and be committed to everlasting punishment. It's a sobering thing. And then Jude brings up this example of Sodom, Gomorrah, the cities around them. There were five cities on the plain of the Jordan, who gave themselves over in the same way 
as these fallen angels to go after strange flesh. They did not stay within the boundaries that God appointed and corrupted their way. This is a reference to homosexuality. God did not create us to do that. And it is a perversion and a corruption of the order that God made for us. So there's a lot more that goes with that. There's a, there's a hardness about it and a brutality about it, which you can even read from the biblical accounts. It's not a nice life. Now, you know, the Bible does not call out homosexuality as something startlingly to be despised and hated. It merely lists this as a work of the flesh, right up there with being disobedient to your mother and your father. And you know, it's not a hate crime to just say this is what God says. This is just the truth. So, it's also biblical that God loves gay people. He loves transgender people. He loves all kinds of lost and desperate people. He doesn't despise them. That just has to be said. Because, again, in our, our polarizing age, if you don't agree with something, that means you hate it. And that's not true. You know, a parent loves his children. And he has a hard time with anything that is destroying his child's life. Does everybody get that? So, these are real, and it has to be discussed and said. But, you know, there are really nice, nice, nice people who aren't going to make it to heaven because they're still resisting Jesus and rejecting him. That is the unforgivable sin. So, that's what we stand for. That's what the Bible says. The point of Jude is that God is going to judge all sin. He is going to punish with eternal fire. Therefore, we need to be sober-minded and to take seriously the things that God says. We need a godly fear because these men that he's writing about their main feature is they are ungodly. And we're going to read about them now. This is the hard part. Verse 8. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, 
when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So you get the picture here. These people are ungodly, just like men and angels whom God has already judged. These people reject authority, and they defile their flesh, and they even revile angelic authorities. And you think that's not such a big deal, but evidently God holds it to be a big deal. This is, this is like in the whole list of sins which Paul will write about, let's say Romans 1 or 1 Timothy 1, tucked away in the middle of all these horrible things, disobedient to fathers and mothers. You think, really? Public enemy number one? He was rude to his mother? And yet it's an entire attitude that is completely offensive and contrary to God because it's not proper. It's arrogant. It doesn't show the proper respect. Even when it comes to angels, God holds that to be important. We're not to be rude. Love is not rude. And yet, some of these guys can be studly and mouth off against the devil. And Jude says, not even Michael the archangel did that. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, some people have a problem because this reference is actually not to something that's in the Bible. It's an extra biblical, something outside. And people say, well, does that mean this 
this is false? I don't know. It, the idea is there. Did you know that Paul quoted a Greek poet in Titus where it says, Cretans are always liars, lazy gluttons? Now, he wasn't saying that what the poet wrote was scripture. He's making a point. And you know the same point that Jude makes here is also in Zechariah chapter 3. Here's what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now this is God. He can tell anybody off when he wants to. He does not have to respect angelic authorities, but he does. Isn't that interesting? God could deliver any kind of condemning judgment on Satan, and he merely says, the Lord rebuke you. Same point as what Jude makes here. And so here are these guys that really don't get God. They don't get his way of salvation. They don't know what they're talking about. What they do understand, naturally, like sex. He says, they abuse this and they corrupt themselves. Jude goes on to compare them in verse 11 with Cain and Balaam and Korah, three guys from the Bible. You notice they've gone in the way of Cain. When Cain killed his brother and God pronounced a judgment on him that he would drive him out of his presence, Cain went to the land of Nod. That's what it says there in Genesis. And it literally means the land of wandering. And it says, he built a city. He named it after his son. He had a wife. He had a family. He had business. He did all kinds of things. So in one sense, he looks solid. He looks rooted. He looks, what's the word? Not wandering. But think about this. You can live as long as Cain did. He must have lived 800 years, 900 years. He must have built buildings. He must have made trades and business and conducted things, worked hard, farmed for all I know. Well, actually, the earth was cursed for him. So he made his way somehow, right? And yet in the end, what was it all for? What if it would last? The answer is nothing. Futility. See, that's wandering. No purpose. Just my nice life right now. And see, this is so ironic. Uh, you know Joel Osteen, one of these guys, you know, that is not really teaching the gospel. And his big book is... Your best life now. That is not the gospel. 
Because this is not our best life now, on our best day. Our best life is yet to come. That is the gospel. So that is the way of Cain. How do I maximize now? How is my life coaching going to get me through my life right now? Now, the error of Balaam. You notice he he modifies that with the word greed. And this is the funny thing. Here's Balaam, a prophet of the Lord, and who he curses gets cursed, and who he blesses gets blessed, and he receives words from the Lord. Cool. He says, I can't do anything against the Lord my God. Okay, fine. But then Balak wants to hire him to curse Israel, and Balaam wants to go for the money. But here is the error of Balaam. You can't serve God and money. And that's a way of saying you cannot do his will and your will at the same time. That is not going to fly in this universe or the next one. But these guys are living in this error where they think you can do the will of God, and make a good amount of money. And they'll teach, this is the way of God. You, If God is blessing your life, you're going to be prosperous. You're not going to get sick. This is not his intention for your life. And they make, they, they really push in this direction. And it is profitable. It is very profitable. I noticed that these guys don't go to third world countries and heal people, whereas they could bless and minister to millions of people. Why do they stay in the United States of America? Because that's where the dough is. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. And you know, they also do violence to scripture to make their point. And I have a hard time with that. So these guys are not being straight when they talk about healing. You can't do both. You gotta do God's will or your will. But the godly thing is to say, not my will, but yours be done. And then you have to know, what is God's will? Does God use suffering? Does he cause it? You see, he does. Because he's God. Otherwise, Job... See, he's not even on the charts because he had sickness. He had terrible things happen to him. And you know what? God allowed it to happen. That is part of the scriptures. And you have to deal with that. Can God only bless? This is what he tells his wife. Shall we receive only good from God and not adversity? And in this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Job is there for a reason, and that is to say that guys that say that God is only going to bless you, they're wrong, and they don't know the scriptures. Well, here's Korah, and Korah rebelled against Moses. Korah said, you know what? Everybody in Israel is holy, and we're holy, and, well, we're the new shop in town. We're, we're going to be the leaders. And, you know, Paul said, savage wolves will come in and try to draw men after themselves. He had 250 men with him, men of renown in Israel. And yet, if you're not called by God, to appoint yourself a leader is already to oppose God. You're already out of line. Moses didn't fight for his place. He said God is going to choose who's going to lead for him. And the earth opens up and sucks in Korah. Fire from the Lord comes out and burns up those 250 guys who appointed themselves as leaders. God chose. So, again, Jude wants to make the point. These guys are not going to prosper doing what they're doing. They're going to be rejected by God. And then he gives... In these next verses, these metaphors for these ungodly people. And I don't think we have to hit them so hard on the head. But basically, these are people who take and have nothing to give, which is really interesting because they put out books and they put out videos and they put out all kinds of things for you to give. But in reality, they don't have anything for you because it's not true. It's not going to focus you on Jesus, his death, his resurrection. It's not going to prepare you to endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That it's all humility now because it's all glory in the future. It's not going to help. So that's why he hits it so hard with this quote from Enoch ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And what that means is they have no fear of God before their eyes. That's what the word literally means, no fear of God. They don't think anything's going to happen because they teach rebellion against God. So notice in verse 16, these are grumblers. This is what you look out for. Somebody who complains. Because what they're saying here, God, grumbling always denies that God is in control of your life. And you know better how to make your life go. And God isn't doing that. And really, God is not doing a, such a great God, job ordering the universe, because look at my life, it's proof. You don't go out and say that, but that's what it really means. And what these guys are about is following after their own lusts. And lust is this strong desire that says, I want what I want. 
God doesn't know what's best for you. You know what's best for you. And I want that. As I looked over these things, I could see myself in them. And it gives me some concern. Because see, I already have ungodly tendencies within me that I have to take to Jesus and say, make me a man after your own heart. So I wonder if Jude doesn't put these things in his letter so that we can look at that and develop that godly fear and say, God, don't let this happen to me. Don't let me become a grumbler. Don't let me be somebody who says, not your will, but mine be done. But what we need to do is just say, okay, God, here I am. Not my will, your will, and you show me. Is this the way you want my life to be? And if it's not, would you please change it? But if it is, would you give me the grace that I need? See, I need to know that God is in control of my life right now. Verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. So he's drawing attention to the fact that all the apostles said these men would come. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Apostle John says in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And of course, Peter, 2 Peter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And of course, Jude quotes that in verse 18. So then Jude shows how to contend earnestly for the faith. And that is, embody the message with your life. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, 
building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now you think, I gotta contend with destroyers. Do I have to? Do you feel sufficient to contend with these people? You know, I don't even myself. I don't feel like going out and fighting with anybody, but that's not what Jude says to do. Did you notice? He didn't say, engage in debate and, and try to win them. And you don't fight people. You know what you do? You strengthen the part of the church that belongs to you, which is you. So the first command here is keep yourself in the love of God. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to keep yourself in this sphere of the love of God. Now you do that by practicing three things. One is you build yourself up on your most holy faith. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You cannot build up your faith and dependence upon Jesus apart from the Bible. So that has to be part of your life, or else it's not part of your life. But every once in a while, part of your life, you're going to die. You're going to have a struggle loving Jesus. And the real secret to that is you've got to feed yourself with the love of God so that you can love God. You've got to be receiving that love. And that's what happens when you learn the facts about Jesus and then you follow the apostolic interpretation of those facts. That's what's got to happen. You know that blues song that B.B. King sang? You guys don't listen to B.B. King, but I do. To know you is to love you. To know you is to love you. That's what it's like. The more you know Jesus, the more you're going to love him. The less you know Jesus, don't be surprised. You don't really love him. So if you want to love him, you've got to be in the word. Now, when somebody comes teaching a different gospel, you're going to hear it right away. You're going to go, what? You're not going to sit there and go, oh, well, you know, he is wearing a suit and a tie, and he does look rather impressive, and he's a fabulous communicator. So he must be right. You know, it always blows my mind that of all the nations in the world, that 
Toronto blessing was the biggest right here in England in over 5,000 churches. And what that means is there were over 5,000 pastors who did not know the Bible enough to say, this is bogus. They came later and said, oh, well, you know, I think we made a mistake. I actually heard of one guy who says, well, it isn't in the Bible, but trust me, this is of God. Holy cow. So, you're going to hear a different aspect emphasized than the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the main thing. Everything comes out of that death and resurrection. Did you notice that in Colossians 2? That all of the blessing comes out of knowing and understanding what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. Any message that produces a different emphasis is wrong. He says also, you keep praying in the Holy Spirit. And this is an amazing thing, to actually be before God and need to pray and you can't pray. I experience that all the time. And I have to ask, will you please help me to pray? Because I can't do this. That's praying in the Holy Spirit, even if it's just saying help. So if you have a lousy prayer life, don't give up. Don't say, well, it's just for praying hide, not for me. You got to just say, God, help me to pray or kill me. But I got to do this. And it'll keep you from grumbling. Did you know that? Did you know that you can thank God even for the stuff you don't like? And what you'll find is God will do something. You can accept the will of God that's happening in your life and say, God, I trust you that you're going to work this out for good. That's what it means. And you find that you don't have that tension in your life because it comes from, I don't like this. It's an amazing thing. And then you keep looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This means you look for the second coming. You don't want to wind yourself up and get all hyped up about it. And I realize there are people who are really doing important things by informing people that the second coming of Jesus is near. I get that. But you got to be aware of the times that you live in that they're not going to go on forever. And you have to think that this life is not it. You don't want to settle down and be comfortable here. You want to remember that all of this is going to vanish and fade. This is not what you want to invest your heart in.
We are waiting for the one we love. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? And see, that's going to keep you in the love of God. Now, the second and third commandments of Jude are about loving others. So have compassion. Have compassion. That's a command on others. See, if you receive the love of God, if you keep yourself in the love of God, then you've got to love others. It's got to go further. And it's got to go to people who don't know Jesus. So whether you like it or not, you've got to evangelize. You've got to tell people about Jesus. Somehow or other, you've got to break the secret. Say the unsayable. And you do it with love. This is the crazy thing. Just love them. Because again, in this day and age, they have never seen that. This is where it is the most amazing thing to be a Christian. Because everything is so polarized. Everybody is yelling at everybody else. I have never heard so many F-bombs in my life. It is unspeakably rude. It doesn't matter which political party. Even the good guys can be unspeakably rude. Now what happens when somebody comes along gentle and meek and humble and talking about the love of God? You know, that's going to be like, you're different. And that carries much more weight. So that's why I always have John 3.16 on my business card. I want to lead with the love of God. People need the love of God. I had a guy, I was talking to him yesterday, and he had never read John 3.16 in his life. And I said, you know what? That love, that's what you need to know because God puts something in you that only something eternal can fill. And everything else is temporary and you cannot be satisfied, but God's love will satisfy you. And he understood and he said, yeah, I get it. That's what everybody is dying for. And you have it. And if you've received that love of God, then you start giving it out and having compassion on everyone around you. Just like Tiffany was saying, praying for those open doors. You don't break them down, but you do pray that the door would be opened and that you could love somebody. God will answer those prayers. You save others, pulling them out of the fire. Some people get themselves in a real mess. Isn't it true? You think, holy cow, I don't want to do this. But again, pull them out of the fire. That's pretty practical. Well, there is no other solution. 
That's what we contend for. Did you know that all the other solutions that everybody is just yelling and screaming are no solution at all? Nobody is going to fix racism. Nobody's going to fix a bad economy. And changing your gender won't touch the problem. Because the problem is we're dead in our sins and transgressions. Nothing superficial will even touch the problem. The only solution is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you know, as time goes on, that's going to be the only solution. None of this stuff is going to work. And you can see it fail in the newspapers every day. Failure, failure, failure. None of this stuff produces a calm person who loves everybody. They're all screaming at each other. So, you know, if any human being could solve the problem, then Jesus died for nothing. So look at this blessing of Jude at the end. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. God is going to keep you. He's going to keep you, and you're going to make it. So even as you contend for the faith, he's going to keep you. He's going to help you. Everybody get that? Okay. Did I kill everybody? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father that you want to save us so that the truth lives in us. And again, we think, who's sufficient for this? Only you are. So please come and transform our lives. Make us men and women after your own heart. Help us to receive your love and help us to love others around us. But we cannot do this without you. So we thank you, Lord, that you hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.